0: Well, good morning. Uh, My plan after Galatians was to begin the letter of Colossians, but I wanted to give myself some more time to study that letter. So today I will be preaching a sermon from John chapter 6 with an emphasis on verses 60 through 70. So John chapter 6 with an emphasis on verses 60 through 70. But before we dive into these verses, I want us to first look at the context. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of 5,000 people. and This crowd was so pumped up that Jesus fed them, they tried to crown Him king. But their desire was not to crown Him king according to the will of God but to crown Him as a king who would cater to their selfish desires. So they were excited about the free meal. They thought maybe He will free us from the tyranny of Rome. Perhaps He will give us wealth. Uh, maybe He would be a granter of our wishes. But Jesus wasn't having it. He withdrew Himself to a mountain, most likely spending time with the Father. But divine compassion calls him again because his disciples are in trouble. They're on a boat. They're crossing the sea to Capernaum, and this nasty storm arises. So Jesus goes. He walks on the water to comfort and remind them that he is truly the Son of God and that they don't need to be afraid. So the next day when they reached the shore this zealous crowd that He fed had followed them. These people were so happy that He hooked them up with Frido. Many of them readily signed up to be His disciple. They weren't following Him to do the Father's will and submit to God's method of salvation. They came because they wanted Jesus to satisfy their selfish desires." And Jesus calls them out in in, in verse 26. He says, look, you guys are following me because you want your tummies filled, but I want you to seek food that will never perish. I want you to feed on me the bread of life. And Jesus uses this situation as an opportunity to teach them about the nature of salvation. And this begins a discourse. They are so hell-bent on trying to earn their way to heaven, trying to come to God on their own terms through the law, through tradition, through self-will. And finally, Jesus tells them plainly in verse 51, He says, look, I am the bread of life. Salvation is in Me. And unless I am in you, Unless you drink My blood and eat My flesh, you will likewise perish. And just to be clear, Jesus is not talking about communion here. That's a gross misinterpretation. Communion hasn't even been instituted yet. And Jesus is certainly not talking about cannibalism. The Jews were not that stupid, and they were not extreme literalists. They understood symbols. They knew what he was saying. Salvation isn't in human effort. Salvation is not in law living. It's found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And unless Christ lives in us, we have no eternal life and will perish. So, this obviously creates a huge offense. This is a stumbling block. Feathers are ruffled. And this is where we will pick up this morning, starting in verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So notice first that the text says disciples. Okay, these are not fans or seekers. These are people who considered themselves Christ followers these are people who decided to follow Jesus and their offense reveals their true commitment and motivation for following Jesus they're upset because his teachings are not lining up with their human desires they expected a king who would give them everything they want freedom from the rome the romans justice for israel and a bread man who could fill their bellies and lower their cost on groceries. And so many people throughout history followed Jesus for bad reasons. That was true in Jesus' ministry, and it is true today. People follow Jesus because they want to be rich. They want Him to bless their business. They want Him to fulfill their dreams and desires, hoping He will grant their requests like he's this magic genie in the sky. And because of their misunderstanding on what it means to be a disciple, along with their shallow and selfish view on faith, offense is inescapable. They are all about following Jesus until they are confronted with persecution, adversity, or biblical teachings that don't align with Their yearnings. They will follow Jesus if it's convenient for them. I'll follow Jesus if he continues to bless my efforts. I'll be his follower if he lets me worship him the way I see fit. I'll be a disciple if I can continue to live in my sin. But the moment life gets tough or my best friend gets cancer or I read a difficult passage in Scripture that directly confronts my way of living, forget it. I don't want a Savior like that. And so what this teaches us is that there is a large group of people out there who are false followers. And they will be offended because they did not come to Christ in true faith, in repentance, and humility. They want delivered from the penalty of sin, but not from the power of it. They want the kingdom, but they do not want the king. They want God's gifts, but they do not want God himself. They want Jesus to give them treasure, but they do not treasure Christ himself. Because coming to Christ is, is not ultimately about you. Of course, we appreciate His gifts, we receive His blessings, we rejoice in what He does for us, but that is not the ultimate reason we come to Christ. We come to Him because we see His infinite value. We adore His very being. We are awestruck by His very nature. We come to Christ because we recognize that He is the Creator, and He deserves all honor, all glory, and praise. And so we come to Christ not because of what He can do for us, but because of who He is. And so we examine and test ourselves. What is my motivation for following Christ? Is it because of His great love Is it because I'm awestruck by who He is and what He's done? Is my motivation inexpressible gratitude, heartfelt love and wonder? Or do I follow Jesus because all my friends are? He gives me good gifts, it's the moral thing to do, and it's positive positive exposure for my children. What is your motivation? So what Jesus is doing here is weeding out the fakers from the true believers, and he continues to press them almost provokingly in verses 61 through 65. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, "Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before?" It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are life and spirit. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted him by the Father." So Jesus, in response to their grumbling, says, are you offended too? He doesn't say, I'm so sorry that you're upset and confused. Here's a box of tissues. Instead, He provokes them further. He's saying, you think the teaching of salvation in me is offensive? What if I told you that I will be resurrected in glory to the place where I eternally existed before. You're disgruntled because of the nature of salvation. Wait until I tell you how it's going to be done. And then Jesus points out why they're offended in verse 63. He says they're offended because their view is earthly, their desires are fleshly. So, in essence, Jesus is saying, my doctrine is spiritual. It's fitted to nourish the soul. It's from heaven. Your doctrine, your views are earthly. You're only thinking about the body. You place great value on Moses and how he fed the body, yet that did not permanently profit. Your fathers are dead. And so, this is why they are so upset. They are relying on their own understanding. They are trying to come to Christ on their own terms. Their desires are contrary to God's will. And what Jesus has been teaching here is directly confronting this. The flesh and the Spirit are incompatible here. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that only the spiritual man can receive spiritual things. The flesh, the the natural man, it cannot, I repeat, cannot understand the things of God, nor does it care about the things of God. Romans 8 tells us that. And we should be wise to recognize that if we are offended by God's Word, we are the problem. God's Word is perfect, it's good, and it's pure. It's our pride and our evil desires that create offense. The flesh is not helpful when it comes to understanding spiritual truth. And Jesus, by the way, has full knowledge here. The text says He knew from the beginning who didn't believe and who would, and who would betray Him. And so, He's fully aware. God is never flustered or surprised. He knows the heart God is sovereign over His salvation. He planned it, He paid it, and He applies it. And so the question here is, if the carnal man can't receive spiritual things, how can we get spiritual and receive Christ and His teachings? If it's true that only the spiritual man can receive spiritual things, how do we get there? If we're naturally sinful and dead in our sins and unable to receive Christ, then how do we get to a place where we can? Well, Jesus explains this in the next verse, verse 65. He says, the only reason anyone could ever come to me is if the Father has granted it. As if they weren't offended already, Jesus drops this bomb on them. This is known as the doctrine of effectual calling throughout Scripture. And the only reason this doctrine is so offensive is that it completely obliterates all human pride. It implies that no one would want Christ, no one would ever adore Him, no one would ever want to love Him or consider choosing Him unless God supernaturally opens our darkened, sinful hearts and calls us to be Christ followers. We come to Christ not through human decisionism, but through divine influence and persuasion. That's what the Greek word in the New Testament faith means. It means to be God persuaded. That is what Scripture constantly says, you didn't choose me, says Jesus, but I chose you. You didn't wake up one day and dig out of your own sinful, depraved, and enslaved volition and say, you know what? I think I'm going to love Jesus today. No, He chose you. You were dead in your sins. You were hostile to God. You were His enemy. But by His power and grace, He unveiled to you the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and He quickened you to Christ. Do you remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah. And do you remember what Jesus said back to him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There it is. God is the one who awakens dead men to life. He is the one who gives us revelation and changes our affections, and He enables us to see our desperate need for a Savior. Our ability to follow Christ faithfully into glory is dependent on God's enabling power. And although this doctrine is highly offensive, it's totally freeing, because if salvation rests upon me, if it rests on my ability to create faith or the lack thereof, I'm toast. But if it rests on the effectual calling of God, if my salvation rests on His promise, and if it's true what Romans 9 says, that the calling and the promises of God are irrevocable, then I am His. Only then can I say that God is the author and the finisher of my faith. Only then can I say that nothing, no thing can separate me from his love. And this completely goes against their understanding of salvation. They think salvation is in their power. They think they can earn it through the flesh by making decisions about God, but Jesus says the exact opposite. Salvation is in Him alone, and the only reason we could ever receive Him is if the Father grants it to us. So you can either believe that salvation ultimately rests on you, or you can believe that salvation ultimately rests on God in Christ through the Father's effectual calling. So in verse 60, they were offended, but after explaining this doctrine to them that tips them over, they throw in the towel. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So once they realized that they couldn't twist God's arm, they said, ah, forget it. Just like the parable of the sower, when push comes to shove, many will renounce their phony faith. When life gets tough, when persecution arises, or when Jesus' teachings don't make sense, many people forfeit the Christian faith. Not because they had salvation and lost it, but the faith they thought they had was really no faith at all to begin with. So over the last few years, people are always informing me on the statistics of people leaving Christianity. They talk about the Pew Research Center and how there are mass amounts of people forsaking their once very rich faith in Jesus Christ. But this was no different in Jesus' ministry. There will always be phony followers who seemingly look Christian, people who know more Scripture than me, they're involved in more ministry than me, who fall away. Not because they lost their salvation or gained it by belief and lost it by unbelief. No, it was because their faith was never real to begin with. And it is vital that we are aware of this, lest we find ourselves overly discouraged or even worse, fake followers ourselves. And next, Jesus turns his attention to his true disciples, the ones whom he knows the Father has granted. And he says in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Geez, you would uh, think he would say something more comforting. Like, hey guys, I know this is some heavy stuff. This is hard stuff. You know, I'm sorry that you feel this way. But he doesn't. He challenges them. He presses them so that they might search the depths of their heart and reveal the genuineness of their faith. So he is compelling them to soul search. Why should I stay? What's holding me back from forsaking Jesus like everyone else? Why do I continue to love Jesus during so much doubt, so much difficulty, so much suffering? But Jesus is confident that if the Father has given them to him, they will persevere. He's confident of what he said back in verse 39, that he will lose no one that the Father has given me. So he can ask this question knowing that he will not lose them. Jesus is not asking this question to see whether they'll leave or not. He already knows. He asked this question like gold in a furnace to refine their faith and pull out of them the authentic work of God. And it is in this question that Peter profoundly says in verses 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This, my friends, is the cry of a true believer. From the world's perspective, they are insane. These disciples sacrificed so much, they left their homes. Their lives are at risk. They just witnessed thousands of people walk away from Jesus. Things did not turn out the way that they had hoped. You know, we often idolize the apostles, but it was no cakewalk for them. There was a lot of emotional, physical, spiritual pain involved. And the Bible never promises Christians earthly comfort. We're not promised temporal comfort and prosperity. The prosperity preachers have it wrong. They are wrong about teaching that. Because following Christ, it's not easy. Jesus says himself in John 16, in this world you will have many troubles. Christians still suffer They still experience immense pain. They have broken relationships. They get into horrible accidents. They get chronically ill and experience death like the rest of the world. And so, why do we continue to follow Jesus? What's our motivation then? And Peter clearly thought about alternatives. He takes a life inventory, probably looking back on his life as a fisherman reminiscing on his previous life before following Christ, and he realizes that there's nowhere else to go. He considers the world around him, the tradition of the Pharisees, the dead religions of Rome, the pagan practices of the Greek culture, and there is nothing there of eternal worth. So like the author of Ecclesiastes, Peter searched the world in this moment for another source of life that might exist in the universe, but he simply realizes that nothing compares to Christ. Everything is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And so when the Christian life gets tough, when you're getting tired of experiencing so much suffering in this life, and you're so tired of fighting your own personal sin, and at times the Bible simply doesn't make sense, and at times God just doesn't feel near, then to top it all off, you got Christians all around you, even people we look up to who are growing cold and leaving the faith. Hear these words this morning. Where else are you going to go? Will you leave also? And so tell me, will you go back to your old life what did that do for you in the past it only made you feel miserable empty, depressed there's no eternal life there will you go back to sex and drugs and rock and roll where did that get you was there eternal life there will you go back to porn or alcohol or drugs is there eternal life there Will you go back to priding yourself in business, or your self-image, or making money, or pursuing your earthly dreams that will probably never work out anyways? How did that suit you before, being your own God? Don't you remember how worthless and pointless and lifeless that way of life was? You see, even though Peter is having a hard time comprehending Jesus' teaching in this moment— He clings to what he does know. One, that Jesus has the rhema, the words of eternal life. And two, that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Messiah. There's a lot of things Peter didn't understand, things that didn't make logical sense to him. But one thing he did know, that there was something about the words of Jesus that were undeniably divine and life-giving. And he was convinced that he was the promised Messiah. So Peter had firsthand experienced and witnessed the power of Jesus Christ. They've seen him on the streets. His words are soul-piercing. His miracles and his healings were miraculous. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Peter has tasted and he's seen that the Lord is good. Peter has felt the divine wooing. He has experienced the compassionate care and the immeasurable love of Jesus Christ. So he is utterly convinced that he is the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. He's been divinely persuaded and he cannot deny it. And in the same way, when we find ourselves in a spiritual funk, look, my friends, to what Jesus has done in your life. He's parted waters for us. Again and again, he continues to deliver us from dark pits. He has nourished us with his word, speaking to us through it. Look back at your life. Can you not see his hand? Look back at your last trial. Did God not sustain you and comfort you? Look at the endless testimonies around you in this church. Are we all delusional? We can become so short-sighted in the storms of life. We can waffle so quickly, serving God one week with the most holy faith, and the next week doubting whether He even exists. In the true state of our hearts, needs challenged. We need pressed. On gloomy days, we must draw out that muster seed of faith, that we have in the person, in the work, and in the words of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded, as Jonathan Edwards once said, that he who has Christ has all he needs and needs no more. In 2015, uh, I graduated Teen Challenge and experienced uh, God's salvation in my life. And I moved back up here to Mount Vernon, and I got plugged in at a local church. Uh, I started a a college-age Bible study and began preaching here and there. And life was great. But after some time, I I found myself confronted with some very difficult theological questions, doctrines that didn't make sense to me. And this created or, or started for me questioning the Bible. Then inevitably, I began to question my faith. And then I realized that life wasn't going in the direction that I thought God would take me. And even worse, I I ended up falling back into some gross sin in my life, old sinful habits. And then to top it all off, during this moment, one of my favorite Bible teachers, who I looked up to, denounced the faith and became an atheist. And so here I am. The Bible doesn't make sense. I'm wrestling through very difficult theological truths. I look around, and the church is full of hypocrites. One of my favorite Bible teachers I listened to just left the faith. I fell back into old sinful habits, and this Christian journey is much harder than I anticipated. So I'm grumbling at God, frustrated, contemplating alternatives. And in an act of desperation, I opened the Bible, and God led me to this verse. Peter's cry, where else am I going to go? I've tried education. I've tried pursuing my sexual cravings. I've tried popularity. I've tried making good money. I've tried drugs. I've tried living life my way. There's no eternal life in any of that. It's all dead and vain and hopeless. You can bring all the riches of the earth. You can bring all the power of the nations. You can bring all the luxuries of life and all the splendor of creation and you put them on a scale with Christ and that scale does not move an inch because Christ is infinitely worth and and more valuable than any of that. And only He speaks the words of eternal life. And only he can satisfy this God-sized hole in our hearts. I've seen God move mountains in my life. I've felt his holy presence. I've tasted and seen that he's good. I've experienced his loving discipline. I've seen his mighty hand time and time again, his love and his provision in my life. There's no denying it. And as frustrated as I was, I simply realized there's nowhere else to go If I don't have Christ, what do I have? The only thing I could say was, Jesus, you are eternal life. And even though I have all these crazy circumstances surrounding me, all these crazy emotions in me, I know that you are the Lamb of God, the Messiah. So perhaps you are here this morning, tired of life, you're exhausted. There has been unforeseen tragedies. God seems distant. The truth of His Word, just hard to understand. The world around you seems to be crumbling, and you feel useless, like you're failing God all the time, and you're mad at yourself for being frustrated with God, and the walls are closing in, and you just want a way out. Friend, where are you going to go? will you leave too? You can't. You can't let go of God. Let me back that up. You can let go of God all you want, but He won't let go of you. If God the Father has given you Christ, you're not going anywhere. You just need to be reminded like Peter of who He is and His faithfulness in your life. May we come back to that simple, childlike faith there's nowhere else to go but heavenward as paul says in philippians 3:14 may we press on towards the goal to win the prize for which god has called me heavenward in christ jesus now jesus does correct peter on one thing in the conclusion of our passage in verses 70 through 71 Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So if you look in verse 69, Peter said, We, Lord, we have come to believe. He's referring to the twelve disciples. But Jesus, in his all-knowing power, corrects Peter on this. He says, Not we, There is a betrayer, Judas Iscariot. So, after the deserters left, Peter mistakenly assumed that all who remained were authentic believers. He assumed that was the ultimate test. Look, the fakers, they're gone, and all the real followers stayed. But Jesus says, no, Peter, you're wrong. There is one among us who is a traitor. And what this shows us is that there are three groups of disciples. There are those who are deserters, those who don't stick around very long because they find Jesus inconvenient. Secondly, there are those who will persevere and continue to follow Jesus into glory. Why? Because the Father has granted it to them. They recognize, like Peter's cry, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. But thirdly, there is this third group, betrayers those described in the parable of the wheat and the tares, who continue to remain in Christian fellowship, ministry, and even Christian conduct, but never truly trusted Christ. They would betray Jesus in a heartbeat for 30 shekels of silver. They would, like Esau, forfeit God's promise for a bowl of soup. So, this is the group that Jesus refers to in Matthew 7. These are people who are beating on the gates of heaven saying, Lord, Lord, why are you not letting us in? We went to church. We prophesied. We did good works. We were involved in the children's ministry. But Jesus says, I never knew you. They were heavily involved in church. They served. They did a lot of good things. But inside, They were unregenerate, unsaved, and had no true affections towards Christ. They may have lifted their hands and worshipped. They loved to talk about theology. They might even remain in fellowship all of their life with God's people. But it is all, like Judas, a kiss of betrayal. They do not have a real, active, love relationship with Jesus Christ. In this reality, church, should be a terrifying warning to all of us. Just because you walk and talk like a Christian doesn't mean that you are. You may not be a deserter, but you could be worse, a traitor, who finds themselves on the day of judgment an enemy of God, who will not be sitting at the great feast in heaven, but will be banished To spend an eternity in hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. So Proclamation Church, what do we do with all of this? Well, I think the first thing is to identify honestly which group we find ourselves in. Are you a deserter? Are you only following Christ because it's cool and convenient? Or are you a traitor You're devoted to church life and service, but inside you're still dead. You're lifeless. You're still hostile to God, having no real relationship with Christ. Or are you a genuine believer? You follow Christ because you utterly love Him by grace through faith. My hope and my utmost prayer for us this morning is that we will all find ourselves as true, committed believers who follow Christ because of His beauty and His splendor and His majesty. Not deserters, not traitors, but genuine disciples who adore Christ and receive Him by faith. God the Father, may You grant that to us today. We need Your help in truly receiving Christ. And as believers, may we recognize, especially in times of trouble, that there's nowhere else to go except heavenward. Life is hard, let's be honest. It's full of tragedies and adversities and sorrows. But in the valley, may we remember who Jesus is, what he has said, and what he has done. May we, like Peter, confidently proclaim, Lord, where else are we going to go? We are devoted. We are committed. We will continue to fight the good fight of faith. We will continue to seek you in prayer and bow down our lives to you and worship you and saturate ourselves in your word. Why? Because we know without a shadow of a doubt that you are the Lord the Messiah, the Savior of my soul, the Lord of lords and the King of kings because we are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray this morning.